Let's open our Bibles tonight to Luke chapter number 2. Luke chapter number 2. I don't know about you, I just can't get enough of these Christmas messages. Amen. Luke chapter number 2 tonight. And uh, I really do believe the Lord has laid this on my heart. I believe it is the message for the hour. We wouldn't be preaching it. And uh, it's somebody, well, we'll just leave that there. Luke chapter number 2. And uh, let's begin reading verse number 36. I just want to read three verses to you tonight. And I want to look at the example of a lady that is often overlooked in the Word of God. But I, I want us to notice her tonight. I want us to draw uh, some wisdom and, and some help from her life. The Word of God uh, wouldn't contain this testimony if we didn't need it. Amen? Uh, that's what it means. When I say I believe my Bible is inerrant and preserved, uh, I believe that it is written by God, and I don't believe that being written by God has been nullified. Uh, I believe it's still the Word of God. I believe it's pure. I believe it is perfect. I believe it is incorrupt. I believe it's exactly what God intended it to be. And I believe when I hold my King James Bible, I'm holding something that is, as far as authenticity and veracity, as far as purity, is as good as if I was holding the originals. And I'm going to say this, as far as convenience, it's even better. Amen? Uh, because I can hold it in my hand and carry it with me and read it. And so the Word of God, the inspired and errant Word of God, it wouldn't contain this if we didn't need it. And I believe we can get some help uh, from the Word of God tonight in this particular passage. Luke chapter number 2, verse number 36. The Bible says, There was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. She was a widow of about four score and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And this is when Mary and Joseph bring the Christ child to the temple. And when she sees the Christ child, it says, She coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the Word of God. Use it in our hearts and use it in our souls. Use it in our mind, Lord. Use it to illuminate us and, and to teach us. And Father, uh, use it to mold us and shape us into that which would please you and that which would resemble Christ. And Lord, that which would give you glory. And help us to permit that process with a heart that is tender, that is surrendered, that is open unto your Word. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when you read through the Christmas narrative and you think about the heroines in the Christmas narrative, there are two primarily that we often think about. When we think about Christmas, we think of Elizabeth and her faith. We think of how her and uh, Zacharias, her husband, trusted God that he was going to perform the things that the angel had proclaimed unto them regarding uh, John the Baptist in his birth. And, and we think about their marriage and their testimony as an example of a godly couple that has served God, been faithful to God, and then is called upon to express a great example of faith in their life. In fact, we could maybe say it this way, that with Elizabeth and Zacharias, we see an example of an aged couple that is living for the Lord and is serving God. I think we ought to serve God our whole lives. I don't think we ought to look at it like there's a retirement age. And I understand we may get to a place in life that there are things that we once did and we wish we could still do them, but health doesn't permit it or ability doesn't 
permit it any longer. But we ought to never view it like, well, I've done my part and now I'm signing off and I'm just, I'm just going to kick back and I'm going to coast until the Lord takes me on to glory. I don't think that's how we ought to be. I think we ought to commit to serve the Lord all of our days. And that's how Elizabeth and Zacharias were. And then we think not only about Elizabeth and her faith, but we very often, I think most often, we think about Mary and her favor. How that God chose this young woman to be a vessel through which God Himself would be manifest in this world. We preached on it this morning. I'm not going to re-preach it tonight. But we uh, look at this young lady and whereas the world sees in her some uh, venerated and invincible and, uh, you know, uh, deity, some, some example of, of immaculate resolve and strength and like she was some kind of angelic creature that was exempted from free will or, or fear or, fear or frailty. I think when we read our Bible right, that's not what we see. I think we see a scared young woman who's trying to make sense out of what God's doing in her life. Uh, but she chose to trust the Lord and God bestowed favor upon her. I don't know that there has ever been anyone in the whole canon of Scripture uh, that went from so lowly a point to so exalted a point as Mary was. She went from being a nobody that nobody knew about, and if they had known about her, they wouldn't have cared about her, to being uh, the singularly most important woman in all of Scripture record. There's more people know who Mary is than even know who Eve is. And we think about that favor in her life. And that's what God said, that she was highly favored. That God had looked upon her and had chosen to bless her and bestow grace upon her life. But I think we rarely think of the woman that we see in our text this evening. In fact, probably if I had asked you as a, as a basic quiz, uh, who knows the two individuals that came and proclaimed the the uh, Messiahship of the Lord Jesus when he was a baby, when he's an infant, you would have probably immediately guessed Simeon. You might have struggled to remember Anna's name. She walks onto the pages of Scripture in one verse, and two verses later she walks off the pages of Scripture, and we have no more record of her life. But in these three verses, I believe we have what encapsulate her encapsulates her as a person. And I would use this word. We, we think of Elizabeth and her faith, Mary and her favor, but when we look at Anna, this woman uh, in our text, we think of her faithfulness to the Lord. You know, very often there's not much said about faithfulness because faithfulness speaks for itself. And when a person's faithful, there's not much else to say after that. You look at their life and their life is the message regarding the impact that they've had. For they have been faithful unto the Lord. But I will tell you this, all those stories of faithfulness, they may not be told down here, but one of these days when we get to heaven, those stories of faithfulness are going to be told. There will be much to be said about this woman Anna one day whenever we're in the presence of the Lord. But here the Holy Ghost just discloses to us three verses. And I think in her life, we have an example of what it means to be faithful. Can I tell you this? You can't control whether you're fantastic, but you and you alone control whether you're faithful. You don't control whether you're, whether you're talented. You don't control whether, generally speaking, you're, you're well liked. You don't control uh, whether you're good looking. Some of us could attest to that. Amen. Uh, but, uh, you do and only you control whether you're faithful to the Lord. It is literally the area of your life that you have the most agency over. Nobody can make you be faithful if you don't want to be faithful. No one can keep you from being faithful if you decide to be faithful to the Lord. Anna is a woman who decided. In the face of adversity, 
in the face of low expectations. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Anna is a woman who chose, when she, though she could not be many things, she could be faithful to her Lord. And I think we have a beautiful example in her life of how you and I should be faithful to the Lord. In these three verses, we find three remarkable things about this woman. And they are contained, uh, the Holy Ghost did us this benefit uniquely in these three verses. For instance, I want you to notice with me what verse 36 says about this woman. It says, and there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. In this one verse, we have a cliff note, a summary of her curious story. When you read the story of Anna in Scripture, it is curious because of its brevity, because it's so short. But when you look a little closer, it's even more curious when you think about the things that the Holy Ghost disclosed to us about her life. She really was an unusual person. There are certain things you can look at in a person's life. I know one of my, this sounds morbid when I say one of my favorite things to do. I guess I should say one of the common things I do when I'm preaching a funeral is I will read the obituary. We typically call it the eulogy at a funeral service. But I will take a few moments to emphasize some of the things that are written in that eulogy. Because very often when we are paying by the word, we don't waste time. The Holy Ghost only tells us three verses about this woman. But in those three verses, we are given a resume, a description of her life that gives us a little context as to why what she did on this day was so remarkable. Notice these things with me. In verse 36, we we find her curious story. And I'm just going to make this statement. Her entire life was an ironic tragedy. When you consider who she was, what her name was, who her daddy was, what her occupation was, where she uh, came from, what her tribe was, what she experienced. It is literally one example after another of a woman who is defying the expectations that are placed upon her in her life and chooses to instead live a life that is surrendered to God even in the midst of much confusion in her life. For instance, notice this with me. Her labels are interesting. She is called Anna. Now that is her name. The name means grace. She is a prophetess. This in and of itself is an unusual thing. She is not the first prophetess in the Word of God. Probably the most familiar prophetess in the Word of God would have been Deborah in the Old Testament in the book of Judges. And uh, it's interesting even how their two lives intersect in a unique way. And then the Bible says she is the daughter of a man by the name of Phanuel. And you say, preacher, that I guess that's interesting. I guess it's good to know. But what is so interesting about her life? Well, think with me for a moment about her name. Her name means grace. You know, names in the Word of God bore significance. There are times when a person's name might be changed at a significant event to memorialize that event. For instance, whenever Jacob wrestled with God at the brook Penuel, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel, which means struggles with God or strives with God. That was a significant moment. But then even very often there would be a name that would be given to a child and that name would come to characterize them because it was a way 
for a parent to give a constant reminder in their life about an important principle. When I think about Anna growing up and, and, and her name being Grace, every time someone called her name, she'd hear the word Grace. Every time that she had to write her name in whatever schooling she experienced, or we should say endured, every time she did that, she was reminded of the grace of God. But when you look at this woman's life, if you look at it through temporal eyes, through human, through fleshly eyes, I think it would be very easy to assume that God's grace appeared to be absent from her life. Her life is not one of happiness, of ease and prosperity. Her life is one of suffering, one of loss, and one of deprivation. She was interesting to me because the prism through which a person would look through her life would seem ironic. Here's a girl that's named Grace, but where is the grace of God in her life? Can I tell you this? Sometimes the grace of God don't look the way we wish it did. I, I know that we wish it looked like the, like the wealth and, and prosperity preachers preach on it, but that's just not the truth of the matter. Sometimes the grace of God and what it does in your life, it's not going to be something that is pleasant. It's not going to be something that is easy, but it is the grace of God nonetheless. It is His goodness and His riches at Christ's expense. And here is a woman whose life at first glance appears to not bear any of the marks of the grace of God. But by the time we come to the close of her life, we see, in fact, God was deeply interested in her life. Her name is interesting, Anna. And then the Bible says that she was the daughter of a man by the name of Phanuel. Phanuel is an interesting name. Here's what it means. It means the face of God. In other words, her daddy was named with this concept being an overarching theme in his life that a man ought to seek and see the face of God in his life. In fact, we mentioned Jacob a moment ago, and the name Phanuel is a variation on the name Penuel, uh, which is the name of the uh, brook across which jo- Jacob traveled that night. It, in other words, here is a man who would have stressed to his family the importance of communing and relationship with God. He said, Preacher, why is that interesting? Well, Anna's living in a time when God had been all but silent towards his people. For 450 years, the prophets hadn't spoken. That makes it all the more interesting that the Bible calls her a prophetess. I'm not going to get deep into it. But I'm saying this. This woman is a walking, ironic enigma. Her very identity bespeaks that she is someone who should have lived a very different life, both in the things she cannot control and in the things she can control by the world's expectations regarding how she lived. But here's what she decided. She wanted to live a life that pleased God no matter who else was pleased or not. Can I tell you the expectations placed upon you in life don't get to define who and what you are. You get to choose whether you're going to live for the Lord or not. You and you alone get to choose whether you're going to have a life that pleases God or whether you're not. And let me tell you, this is the first great truth of faithfulness. Only you can purpose faithfulness in your life. Why was Anna a faithful person? Was it because she had an easy road and it was obvious she'd served God because God had only ever been good to her? No, it's not the case. Instead, we find a life where lesser people would have been given plenty of opportunity to curse God and die. But instead, she just keeps being faithful to Him. Even though her expectations in life were not met and fulfilled, even though other people's anticipation of her life, and even though God seemed to be silent towards His people, which would have included her, she still remained faithful nonetheless. So here's the question for me and for you tonight. What's our excuse? Chances are we've not experienced the hardship that this woman experienced. We have just a glimpse of it. 
But what's the difference between her and a hundred people that have lives that are a hundred times easier and still won't live for God? The difference is the choices that they make. There's never been anyone that has done the wrong thing that hasn't tried to cast themselves as a victim. It's a defense thing. We all try to make it seem, well, I didn't want to do this and I didn't want to go this direction, but my hand was forced and this is the way it was. You know what I like about Anna? She's someone that's not blaming anyone for her life. She's someone that is blessing the Lord and purposing to serve God in spite of the unpleasant things that she comes into contact with. You know, if you're going to be faithful to God, you're just going to have to make up your mind that you owe it to Him to be faithful. And no matter what else happens in your life, you still owe Him that. You're going to have to decide that your commitment to be faithful to God is not predicated on Him uh, bestowing and showering your life with grace and with favor, but rather because He is owed that faithfulness and you as His creature and as His child owe it to Him to live a way that pleases Him. I think her labels were interesting. But then the Bible says this about her, that she was of the tribe of Asher. Now this is an interesting little piece of information about her. Uh, for a number of reasons. The tribe of Asher, of course. Asher was one of the children of Leah, the wife of Jacob in the Old Testament. And if you study the history of the tribe of Asher, remember uh, that there are children born to Leah and to Rachel and to Leah's handmaids and to Rachel's handmaids. And these children grow up and become the twelve tribes. Their families do become the twelve tribes of Israel. And she is a descendant of Asher. When you consider this, there's some interesting irony in her life. In fact, if you just go through and, and catalog the examples, when, when the tribe of Asher is referenced in the Old Testament, this won't get all of them, but this gets a lot of the important and significant ones, you find that each of them informs something about her life. For instance, the first time we find this name is in Genesis chapter 30. Verse 13, whenever Leah gives birth to Asher, not the tribe, but the individual from which the tribe would come. And the Bible says, and Leah said, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asher. Everything else that's said about this tribe in regards to their fate and destiny always drags into it and always draws upon this idea of blessedness in the tribe. What'd that mean to Anna? Here's a woman whose uh, life is not marked by blessing but by burden. And I just jotted down this little statement. Hers was a life of pain in a happy tribe. Everybody expected folks in the tribe of Asher to have joy and have jubilance and have happiness because after all, they were one of the bigger tribes and the more blessed tribes and, and there's no reason with all the benefits they're afforded that they should ever have anything to be unhappy about. And even the patriarch of their tribe was known as a happy person, as a joyful person, as someone that enjoys life. But that's not the life that Anna had experienced. Her life was characterized not by joy, not by blessing, not by favor and ease, but rather by pain. Next time that we find Asher mentioned by name is in Genesis chapter 49, whenever Jacob is blessing his sons. And this is what Jacob says about them. He says, out of Asher, his bread shall be fat and he shall yield royal dainties. Now this is bespeaking the prosperity that the tribe of Asher would be afforded, would be given the opportunity to enjoy. What did that mean to Anna? Was hers a life of prosperity? No. 
we could say this, hers was a life of poverty in a prosperous drive. You don't wind up a widow living at the temple if you've got money to come home to. We'll say a word about this here in a moment, but you also don't do that if you've got children at home either. She wound up being a ward of the temple because she was an impoverished individual. So in other words, hers is a life where everyone would expect and anticipate that she would be affluent, would be well-to-do, would never have to have any want. And by the way, let me remind you that though her husband is dead, though it appears she has no children, there's no reason to believe she did not have extended family that just like many in the tribe of Asher, you would imagine would be prosperous and affluent. And people would naturally look at her and expect that this is a woman for whom life would be easy. But that's not the case. Instead, hers was a life of poverty in the midst of a prosperous tribe. The next time that the tribe of Asher is mentioned is when Moses is blessing the tribes. In verse number 30, uh, 24, Deuteronomy 33, listen to what it says. And of Asher he said, let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren and let him dip his foot in oil. Again, the oil bespeaks the idea of prosperity. The being acceptable uh, to his brethren deals with the idea of popularity. Uh, but the very first phrase, let Asher be blessed with children, deals with the idea of them being populous. Deals with the idea of progeny, the idea of children. And I would say this, that when we look at her life, as we've already said, if she had adult children or even grandchildren that could have tended to her or maybe even a niece or a nephew, she wouldn't have wound up in the shape that she was in. But she wound up there because she had none of those people in her life. We could say this, hers was a life of pain in a happy tribe, a life of poverty in a prosperous tribe, but hers was a life of loneliness in a populous tribe. When everybody expected that she should have had a support system, a group of people gathered around her to help her and to prop her up, that was not the case in Anna's life. Instead, now she's an aged widow woman living off of the goodwill of the Levitical system. And then it's mentioned again, the tribe of, of, of Asher is in Judges chapter number 1. Now, the Bible says this in verse number 31. Here are the children of Israel. They've come into the promised land and they have been tasked throughout the book of Joshua with exterminating the Canaanites out of the land. And, and now in Judges chapter 1, they're reviewing what has happened during that period of time. And it says in verse 31, Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor the inhabitants of Alab, nor of Akzib, nor of Helba, nor of Aphek, nor of Rehob. But the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. That's interesting. What that suggests to us is when the tribe of Asher had the opportunity to cleanse the land, to purify it, to make it a place fit to raise their kids in. They did not do that. They instead subjugated themselves to the Canaanites who learned how to live amongst them and instead just made peace with those that hated God. What does this tell us about Anna's life? Well, not much if we're being frank. You know why? Because her life wasn't nothing like that. I wrote it down this way. Hers was a life of purity in a compromising tribe. If a person was of the tribe of Asher, you, you assumed that they had a, a, a significant amount of Canaanite influence in their family. But we find that that's not the case with Anna. She was a pure person in her convictions. 
the next time. The last one I'll mention is in Judges chapter number 5, verse 17. Now this is after, and I told you it's interesting the way that, that Deborah in the Old Testament, her life intersects the life of Anna in the New Testament because of the tribe of Asher. Because after Deborah and Barak defeat the Canaanites, the very ones that the tribe of Asher had compromised with and cohabitated with in their land. After there is a war that takes place, God liberates them through the hand of Deborah and Barak from the Canaanites. Deborah sings a song of rejoicing and testimony to God. And in it, she does, this is how the kids say it today, she starts throwing shade at people. Alright? That's the, that's the young hip term. She starts, in, in other words, she starts criticizing and calling out some of the other tribes. You know why? Because some of them didn't show up to the fight. Some of them were afraid to. And some of them, like the uh, the Asherites, were too compromised to do so. And she says this in Judges 5.17, Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. In other words, she's calling them out because they didn't show up in the day of battle. When it mattered the most, they lacked the courage to take a stand against that which was ungodly and unrighteous. What does that tell us about Anna? Well, again, not really much because everything you'd expect this woman to be, she is not. Hers was a life of pain and a happy tribe. Hers was a life of poverty and a prosperous tribe. Hers was a life of loneliness and a populous tribe. Hers was a life of purity and a compromising tribe. And hers was a life of courage and a cowardly tribe. When everybody else was tucking tail and, and, and bowing and bending and breaking, this woman, for over a hundred years of her life, had stood and been a testimony for what was right in the land of Israel. Now you're going to say, Preacher, that's interesting. I didn't know all that about the tribe of Asher, but what does that have to do with me? Here's what I want you to get from it. Here's a woman that decided her life was going to be characterized by faithfulness no matter what anyone else thought. Whether they expected her to be faithful, whether she was looked down upon for being faithful or would not have been looked down on for not being faithful, none of that matters to her. She is a woman that does not care what the expectations are upon her life, does not care what excuses might have been made for her if she was not what God called her to be. She decided she was going to be faithful because that's what God values and loves is faithfulness. She defied the odds. And she chose to be a faithful individual. Now, I'll tell you this. For my part, I can be the greatest Christian you ever met. Did you know that? I can be the absolute, I can be the most spiritual, the most consecrated, the most committed, the most passionate, the most zealous Christian that you've ever met. Now, generally only last 8 to 12 minutes, but I can be those things for that moment in time. Listen, uh, you know, superlativeness in our Christian life is admirable but steadfastness is more admirable. And you know what we find? We find that her length of days is interesting. Now we have to do a little back of the envelope math to get a real idea. And this is how it is with most women. Amen. You've got to do a little back of the envelope math to really get an idea of how old they are. You've got to start, well, they was born and, they was, and then they get mad when you do that. But she's in heaven with a glorified body, so I don't think she'll get upset if we stop and think about how old this woman was. The Bible says with great tact, that she was of a great age. That's, ladies, how you need to start referring to yourself. You say, how old are you? You say, I'm a great age. (laughs) She was of a great age. But when we study her life, we get an idea of just how great that age was. We are told that she lived seven years of her life married. 
Then we are told that afterwards she lived 84 years of her life widowed. If we add those together and if we add just a basic minimum of 12 years old for her childhood, it was not typical for uh, Hebrew girls to be married before they were 12 years old. That was the age of, of womanhood in their culture for, for young women. And, and it's possible she was much older, even though it was permittable uh, to be married at that young of an age during Bible times. That didn't mean that Typically people were. She could have been 15 or 16 or 18. We don't know how old she was. But if we just say, rounding down, safe estimate, 12 years old, she would have been 103 whenever she meets the Christ child. Say, preacher, why is that interesting? Well, think about her faithfulness. It's easy to be faithful for a little while. In fact, everybody typically is faithful for a little while. Every person in this room is faithful to Sunday nights. Tonight. Whether you will be next week or not, I don't know. All these people was faithful to Sunday mornings last week. Now look at them. But this is a woman that had lived a consistent life of consecration and service to the Lord. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. Faithfulness is only faithfulness if it's consistent and if it is enduring. Now somebody's going to say, preacher, that's too high of a bar to set. What happens if I mess up? Oh, you don't think Anna messed up in her life? Listen, I can't live 103 minutes without messing up. You think she lived 103 years and didn't mess up? No, surely she messed up. So what's the secret, preacher? You can mess up, just don't give up. You're going to make mistakes. Take it to God, ask forgiveness, move past it, and get up and go on and serve the Lord. Here's the truth, she didn't quit. would have been easy to quit. And the reason is because of the next phrase. It says she had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity goes on to describe that for 84 years of her life she had been a widow. Imagine that for a moment. Here is a young woman who has consecrated her life to the Lord. God has given her a husband and a happy home. And for seven years they enjoyed that home. And I think it is reasonable to say this. I don't, if you, if you don't want to hear what I'm about to say, that's fine. But I think this is a reasonable thing to say in that time, in that day. It would, it would imagine, we can imagine that for seven years they anticipated the birth of a child. They probably didn't have the means to be able to effectively or reasonably be able to withhold from having a child, from becoming with child. And, and so you can imagine for that first seven years them anticipating the birth of a child. It's possible a child could have been born and then lost due to some tragedy. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. But what we do know is that for seven years of her life, she lived as a married woman. And we can imagine with some degree of happiness. And then all of a sudden, it all comes crashing down one day. And she spends the next 84 years of her life, her life marked by and characterized by the loss that she experienced. Her loss was interesting. Hers is a life that when you want to tell the story of it, you have to tell this traumatic event that took place in her life. But you know, even that traumatic event did not stop her from serving God. I, I, I hope what I'm about to say is received right. But nobody ever quit on God because God was mean to them. Now that doesn't mean that there are not things in our life that occur that we struggle to understand. Nor does it uh, mean in our life that we're not going to experience things that we may live the rest of our days with questions about. But nobody ever quit on God because God was too mean to them. And no one ever experienced a trauma so severe that they couldn't find grace and help in the arms of the Lord. I'm not saying it don't hurt when we're hurt. 
I'm not saying that it doesn't change us when we lose things. Of course it does. But I'm saying this, in all that hurt and all that pain and all that change, we don't have to give up on God. And she's an example of that. I I see her curious story. And you see what I mean. Her life is an ironic tragedy. All the things she should be, she's not. And all the things you'd expect her to have and to enjoy, she has none of those things. But in the midst of all that, she just keeps serving God. And that's what verse 37 tells us about. Verse 36 tells us about her curious story. Verse 37 tells us her constant service. Three things, very simple, are said about her. The first is that she was a widow of about four score and four years. What can we learn about her service? Well, I would say number one tonight, she served with pain. I remember years ago hearing a preacher preach on this topic, playing injured. Are we able to keep playing even when we're hurt in our life? Uh, all of the greats in sports would tell you there are times you got to play even when it hurts because the game's too important. And in our Christian life, I would say this. I wish I could tell you you're never going to have to serve God when you're hurting. But I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. There's going to be times you're going to have to stay faithful to Him even when what you're going through is tearing you apart. There's going to be times you're going to have to serve Him even when you don't understand Him. There's going to be times that you're going to have to say like Job, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. And Anna is a beautiful example of this. We never, and her, her experience of, of, of loss in her life, if we were to liken it to, to Job's experience, then she, like Job, never got a glimpse of, of understanding of the providence behind it. We have no reason to believe she ever understood why God permitted her to, to uh, love a man and marry him and, and spend seven years of her life only to have him ripped so unceremoniously from her life. We, we don't know any of that. All we know is this woman had to be hurting. But she didn't quit on God. She kept serving Him in the midst of all of it. Now somebody's going to say, well preacher, you know, we keep on serving God and God will bless us and God will heal us and God will make things better. There's two things I want to say about that. One, when you lose somebody you love, God may help you get up and go on, but you don't ever quit hurting. You're always going to hurt. You're always going to miss them. Now it may not be as all-consuming as it is in those early days or early years. But, but when you lose someone, you're always going to miss them. It's always going to hurt. And then I would say this about Anna in particular. Her example, I think it's pretty apparent. There was nothing that prohibited her in Jewish law from getting married again. The bio, her husband is dead. And she is permitted to remarry. Could it be she never remarried because she just never quite got over it? For 84 years of her life, she never got over it. You know what that tells me? That tells me this. She probably hurt every day of those 84 years. She probably never got to a place in her life where, where she was over it. If she had been over it, she would have probably had ample opportunity to get remarried, to go on, to have a family, do all that. But she doesn't because her life has been touched by this pain. But you know what she did? She didn't give up on God. She just kept serving God through the pain. I'm not saying that, well, how do I say this right? I'm not saying it's pleasant, but I am saying it's profitable. Just keep serving them in the midst of it. Not only did she serve with pain, but the Bible says this, she departed not from the temple. She served with persistence. You know one of the things I love about her life? She viewed her tragedy as being something that could be turned to the good and glory of God. Like the Apostle Paul in, in the book of 1 Corinthians who spoke about marriage and, and spoke about his own loneliness and said that he viewed it 
as something that could be given unto the Lord that He could serve God without having to regard the temporal needs of another human being and that He had consecrated Himself unto Christ. He's very clear to say that's not the will and path of God for everybody. Uh, when the Catholic Church says about priests that, that they are to remain uh, you know, celibate and not married, the Bible warned that that would be a mark of end-time apostasy. I'm not saying it's the will of God for everybody to refrain from marrying. The Bible says the man find a wife, he findeth a good thing. Uh, and, and if he was talking about my wife, he'd say a great thing. Somebody say amen. No, don't say amen. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this. I'm not trying to venerate what she experienced. But she did, she did look at it and say this. You know, I've got a lot of time on my hands and I can't do a lot, but I can serve the Lord with it. There's a lot she didn't have. There's probably a lot she couldn't do. But she said, I've got all this time and I can spend time in the house of God praying and serving the Lord. She was persistent in her life. She didn't let up and she didn't turn back and she didn't run away. And that, I think, is the key with faithfulness. You know what faithfulness is? Persistence. Keeping the pressure on. Not ever getting to a place where we where we pop the relief valve on our commitment to the Lord and just sort of back away and say, eh, it's not important anymore. It's keeping the pressure on. And what I mean by that is saying, I have a duty to serve God. There may be times I'm providentially hindered from it. And if there are, that's between God and His own providence. But every time I have an opportunity, I'm going to serve the Lord. I remember years ago talking to a man who ironically is out of church today, as far as I know. He, I don't know. They might be back in church somewhere. But I, I remember talking to a person years ago, and, and uh, th- this fellow said something that struck me, stuck with me all these years. And you've heard me mention it several times if you've been around any amount of time. He said to me, he said, you know, Brother Toby, man only makes up his mind to go to church one time in his life. I remember looking at this fellow and kind of confused. And, and he said, here's what I mean. When you make up your mind that you're going to be in church, no matter what, he said, there'll be times you can't be. There'll be times you're providentially hindered, times you're on vacation, times when your family's meeting on December 26th, you know, whatever it might be. There'll be times you'll be hindered from doing it. But you won't every Sunday and Wednesday have to have that conversation with yourself where you say this, well, are we going to go to church? I began to think about that. I thought about the way I was raised. And you know, it was never a conversation in our house whether we was going to go to church on Sunday. It was just we knew we were. We never came to mom and dad and said, are we going to church tomorrow on Saturday night? We never said that. You know why? It was a dumb question. People say there's no dumb questions. That was a dumb question in our house. We knew we was going to church the next day. In fact, mom and daddy would take a a Sunday afternoon nap and along about like 5 o'clock, the house would get real quiet. All of us kids got real well behaved because we were hoping mom and daddy would sleep through the alarm clock and we'd get to lay out of church Sunday night. Because it was never a conversation. It was never a discussion. You know what that is? Persistence. Never giving yourself a break regarding indulging your own flesh. And I found this, when people are truly persistent in their commitment to God, they often don't have the insecurities that some have when you are providentially hindered. Here's the truth of the matter, and I've met people like this. They was going to be in church when they could be in church. So the times they couldn't, they didn't feel bad about it because they knew, honest hand to God, that they would have been there if they could have been there. I've met other people that live in constant anxiety over everything that takes place that cause them to have to miss or cause them to not be able to serve or cause them to not be able to do this or do that. You know a lot of the reason for that? Because intermingled in that is a lot of personal preference and decision. When we've made up our mind we're going to serve God, 
then only when God prohibits us are we prevented. And when God prohibits us, we can say with a clear mind and a clear conscience, Lord, that was in your hands, not in mine. And we can sleep at night. I'm saying she served with persistence. She kept the expectation up in her life that she was going to serve God. She departed not from the temple. And then it says this, but she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. This is a woman that served with pain. She served with persistence, but she served with passion. She wasn't half in. She served God night and day. Not only with prayer, but with fastings as well. And I'll tell you this, you, you can't serve God with prayers and fastings and not at least to some degree mean it. Food tastes too good. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> Thanks. It just, I, I, this is a woman that wasn't just half in. She said, if I'm going to serve God, I'm going to serve Him. I'm going to give Him everything that I've got. Not just part of it. I'm going to give Him my whole life, my whole heart, my whole soul, and my whole body. And I'm going to let Him do with it as He sees fit. I'm going to yield myself unto Him. And I'm going to make my life count. Faithfulness is when we serve God, not just out of formality, duty, or obligation, but we serve Him with zeal. That's the Bible term. The zeal of the Lord hath eaten me up. We serve Him with zeal. We say, I want my life to be a passionate display of my love for Him. I see her constant service. And then notice verse 38. So here's a woman that for 84 years of her life, she has lived in widowhood. We can assume that probably for all of her life, she has been aware of who God is. Her daddy seemed to know or believe in God. And she's lived for over a 100 years serving God to a greater or lesser degree. And much of that spent in mediocrity and mundanity. Oh, she's gone about the, the comings and goings of life. She's, she's got married. She's lost a husband. She's grown old. But by and large, there's just been not much to write about. The Holy Ghost only gives us three verses about her whole life. Why is that? Well, there wasn't much to say. She started serving God and she didn't quit. But now at 103 plus years old, a remarkable thing happens in her life. You know, funny thing about faithfulness, we said this last week talking about Simeon, uh, if you just show up every time, you'll be there when God shows up. And that's what happened in Anna's life. She just kept serving God. And then all of a sudden, one day a remarkable thing happens. The Christ child is being carried into the temple. And she's one of two people that the Holy Ghost opens their eyes and shows them exactly who that is. You know what that was? That was, that was part of the byproduct of a life of faithfulness. I'll tell you what we want to do. We want to, we want to strike the, the moments like lightning. We want to, we want to just happen to intuit when it's an important time to serve God so that we can be present there to receive that blessing or to see that remarkable thing in our life. But people that see God work, that ain't how it happens. They don't do it by showing up on the important days. They do it by showing up every day. They don't do it by serving God during the important times. They do it by serving God all the time. And here's a woman that served God all the time. And so in verse number 38, we have her crowning song spoken of. This is the greatest moment in her life. How did it take place? Three things. Notice number one, verse 38, it says, She, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of Him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. You know what we notice in this? When this moment comes, she's lived a life of faithfulness and now it is rewarded, now it is honored, now it is it is emphasized. Why was that? Well, number one, because of her promptness. 
she never just shifted into auto mode. She never just turned the cruise control of her Christian life on and quit paying attention. She stayed present serving God. And when the moment came that God moved, she was ready to move too. Man, I wonder how many amazing things that God does we miss out on because we just ain't paying attention to what God's doing. I wonder how many amazing things God desires to do in our life that never take place because we just ain't paying attention. She was paying attention and she was prompt. She didn't put it off. She didn't wait because after all, she was doing in this moment what she had done every moment. You think about what her day looked like. It didn't look no different on that day than it did the day before. She she got up. She departed not from the temple. She got up from whatever widow's uh, apartment might have been present near or or there, and 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 she went and she started to pray and and she started to seek God and she started to minister for the Lord. She just started to do what she had always done. And so when the moment came, she was ready to move and to act and ready to be used by the Lord. Again, we want God to coordinate with us. We want Him to call us up and let us know the days it's important to be committed. And we'll clear our calendar and make sure those days are set aside. But that's not what, that's not what it looks like. Instead, it looks like a life of faithfulness. And if we'll be faithful, then then in that moment when faith is called upon, we'll be ready to answer. I see her promptness, but I see also her praise. What she do? She gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. She recognized that what God had done in this moment had been of God and not of herself. I've said this before, but faithfulness in the life of the believer is predicated on the faithfulness of God. The kind of faithfulness that is flighty, that is that is inconsistent, that is inattentive, is typically rooted in the flesh. We're serving God because we feel like serving God. What happens when we wake up one day and don't feel like serving God? Don't say it don't happen to you because it happens to all of us. Then you ain't going to serve Him. But true biblical faithfulness is predicated on the faithfulness of God. It says two things. One, I should be faithful to Him because He has been faithful to me. But more importantly than that, it says this, I can be faithful to Him because my faithfulness is merely my consistent obedience to Him in His life. And because He is faithful, if I let Him live through me, I will be faithful. I don't know if I can stress this enough. That's... You want to know what the secret sauce is? You want to know what the what the secret recipe? That that's it, and it ain't a secret. It's right there on the pages of your Bible. It's not you striving; it's you surrendering to the Holy Spirit and to the Word of God in your life. It's not you saying, "All right, I got a good line out of of what it looks like to be a Christian. I'm gonna take a run and leap at it." That's not what it is. It's you saying, "Lord, I can't do this, but if you'll guide my steps, I'll go where you tell me to." And it's not us taking a running leap of faith and becoming a spectacular Christian. It's us standing hand in hand and saying, all right, Lord, right there. All right, I'll put my foot there. All right, Lord, now here's where you want this one. All right, Lord, here I go. All right, Lord, now you want this right here. Here's where I'll go. I'll I'll go here. That's what it looks like. It looks like staying in communion with the Lord and letting Him guide and direct our footsteps. And then because He is faithful as we surrender unto Him, we'll be faithful in our lives. You know why she praised God? Because God deserved the praise due to His faithfulness in her life. And she recognized this fundamental truth. She had only been faithful because God had been faithful. And she could only be faithful because God is faithful. 
I, I see her praise, but then I see her proclamation. It says, and she spake to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Here's what she did. She told them that the time had come, that the king was here. She was ready to deliver that message. Do you know why? Uh, you ever ask this question? Wonder reckon how she knew all the people that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I mean, did they have a club? Did they meet at the Hardee's every morning and eat biscuits? How'd she know? Did she look them up, look them up online, find a Facebook group? People looking for redemption in Jerusalem. She put out a classified ad. Now, how did she know who was looking for redemption in Jerusalem? In other words, how did she know where to go and who to tell? Because that was her crowd. <laughs> and she was able to deliver that message. You know why? Because people knew this was not the ravings of a wild-eyed fanatic. But rather, this was the clear, calm, measured witness and testimony of a faithful, consistent Christian. Because she had been consistent in serving the Lord. When the time came that God said, I need a messenger. I need someone that people take seriously. I need someone that people listen to. I need someone that is credible in the eyes of those that are looking for the Messiah. She looked around and she found this 103-year-old plus woman and said, she is the best one for the job. Because she more than anyone has lived a life that bespeaks that she is a serious and committed and separated individual. In other words, I'm saying this, when we're faithful, God can use us for things that He couldn't use us for if we was unfaithful. And probably the greatest limiting factor in God's using people in their life is their lack of faithfulness. He, he, he's not worried about your lack of ability. He is God after all. He's not worried about your lack of wisdom. He's God after all. He's not worried about your lack of power. He's God after all. But here's something he can't do anything about. That's your lack of faithfulness. You have to be the one that decides to be faithful. And if what God wants to do in your life requires faithfulness, if you won't be faithful, there's nothing God can do to make you fit for that task. Wonder how many things we miss out on because we just won't be faithful to God. Instead of making excuses and finding reasons, and, and, and it might be reasons everybody would be fine with as to why we aren't serving God or can't serve God or won't be serving God in a week or weren't serving God last week. Why don't we just make up our mind that we're going to serve God day by day in our life and by His strength and by His help, we're going to stay faithful. doesn't mean we're going to be flawless, but it does mean we're going to be faithful. When we make mistakes, we're going to get up, put it under the blood, the grace of God, and go on and keep serving the Lord. And if we'll commit doing that, we'll have a life like this faithful woman in Luke chapter 2. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want you to have an opportunity to deal with the Lord tonight. If God has spoken to your heart, don't hesitate. Meet Him down. Do like Anna did, coming in that instant. Don't give the flesh an advantage. Come and meet God in this altar and ask God to perform these things in your life and ask God to stay uh, keeping you, your feet to the fire regarding these things and to grow you and to develop you. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I love you. And I ask it in Christ's name.